This is Mark Sevy with Five Points Podcast. I'm again by myself, flying solo. Um, I, you know, there's no real reason for that. It uh, just is a series of circumstances, but uh, I hope I'm not boring you too much with just my voice. Um, going to do things a little bit different. I'm just going to rush through the opening parts because I have a rather long uh, writer profile. Um, anyway, what am I working on? My book. Uh, it's a lot, a lot of work. If, uh, if you want to know if you, if you want to test yourself on your knowledge, teach. If you want to teach, test your teaching, write, write a book. It's a lot to do. And, um, still waiting for word on my pilot. Hopefully this coming week. Uh, what else? Oh, so I watched, uh, I, because I'm working on the book and it's primarily about film. Uh, I've been watching a lot of movies lately. I'm really enjoying, uh, after so much television, which I, which I thoroughly enjoyed to go back to watching a feature or two. I watched uh, last night Molly's game that was available on Netflix. What a terrific little film. Aaron Sorkin, terrific, just amazing writer. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, uh, as, uh, Molly Bloom, I think her name was, and her attorney. And then uh, Kevin Costner has a part as her father, but, uh, highly recommended. Um, also watched, uh, rewatched The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, one of my favorite films, also a great book. When we first started the podcast, uh, in 2017, um, it was completely different. We had, um, I had two co-hosts and we met live at a, uh, at a location, set up a bunch of recording equipment and, and recorded using a, a mixer and a recorder. It was a lot of fun. But the first one on the way to the podcast, I decided <clears throat> I wanted to do a writer profile and I hadn't prepared anything, but I thought, gee, I know enough about Rod Serling to do this. So, um, I just kind of winged it. Uh, it, it, it turned out terrible. We deleted it. The next week I did a, a I wrote out a profile of Rod Serling. And it worked out much better, and I've been doing it that way since. So I want to rep- reprise that. It's it's rather long. It's almost 20 minutes long. So, you know, hang on. I'll put in a couple breaks in there and save you from the from the horror of listening to my voice for a solid 20 minutes. But um, Rod Serling is a, a personal hero of mine. Uh, just a, I, I try to emulate his work, his style. Uh, I believe in his work ethic. Uh, he died way too young. And I, and I think given the legacy that he had, he would have been st- still amazing up to today if he had uh, survived. Anyway, we'll come back. Uh, we're going to do a profile on Rod Serling. There's a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. So goes one of the most iconic monologues in television history by TV pioneer Rod Serling, who wrote, directed, produced, and acted in the series, The Twilight Zone. Serling, an early pioneer of television, was driven, self-admittedly so. Quote, writing is a demanding profession and a selfish one, he said. And because it's a selfish and demanding, because it is compulsive and exacting, I didn't embrace it. I succumbed to it. My diet consisted chiefly of black coffee and fingernails. That obsession for perfection would eventually kill him. But what a ride he had. Rod Serling was one of the most prolific writers in TV history. His biography is almost too big for any single sitting. He wrote so much that it's nearly impossible to list all the companies he wrote for. 
He's also one of the most celebrated writers, earning four Emmys, a Hugo, a Writers Guild Award for children's programming, a Peabody, and many more awards for his work. Born in Syracuse, New York, to Esther and Samuel Serling, Rodman, at even the young age of six, spent hours acting out dialogue from movies. He was considered a class clown, unteachable, but joining a debating team proved instrumental in focusing him. His five-foot-four size kept him out of football, but he enlisted in the Army, became a paratrooper in the Philippines during World War II, before transferring to the 511th Demolition Platoon, nicknamed the Death Squad for its high casualty rate. Earning a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star, among other military awards, showed he wasn't shy about getting into the thick of battles. Serling's war experiences would influence his writing and cause him to have nightmares and horrifying flashbacks of combat all his life. At Antioch College Station after the war, Serling wrote, directed, acted in many of the programs there. In fact, one year he wrote the station's entire slate. For extra money in his college years, Serling worked part-time testing parachutes for the United States Army Air Forces. He got $50 for each successful jump and had once been paid at $500, half before and half if he survived, for a particularly hazardous test. In one instance, he earned $1,000 for testing a jet, a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers. Serling volunteered at station WNYC in New York as an actor and writer in the summer of 1946. Quote, I learned time writing it for a medium that is measured in seconds, Serling later said. While in college, Serling won his first accolade as a writer. The radio program, Dr. Christian, had an annual scriptwriting contest. Serling run won for his radio script, To Live a Dream. He signed with an agent and sold nothing for a year. Sounds familiar. He said of that first sale that it was a high point of his career, that he didn't think anything equaled that feeling. That's the one he, that, that's the one that comes with magic, he said. Which is sad if you think about it, because it implies that the writing he did after that lacked any sort of thrills, which I find hard to believe since he was so celebrated. But it's clear he was truly so tortured, he couldn't always enjoy his successes. TV was just starting, mostly in New York. Serling was perfect for it. He was good and fast and had a relentless drive. Live dramas were beginning to emerge away from TV to move beyond cheap quiz shows and crime dramas. These were written by such notables as Patty Chayefsky, Reginald Rose, and Abby Mann. That's where the phrase television playwright or teleplay came from. They were literary plays filmed for television, live, every week. Rod Serling was emerging quickly in that new group of writers. His script for the show Patterns was his first huge success. It was the first and only production to be rerun by audience demand. It also won him his first Emmy and a Peabody Award. It was a horribly difficult piece to watch. It dealt with an older man being replaced by a younger man, the unconscionable circle of life and business and the world. I was writing about the values of society that place so much stock in success and has so little preoccupation with morality once success has been obtained, he said. And this is not the morality of good and evil. This is the morality, uh, this is morality's shady side of the street. And in many ways, this shade was Serling's metier. Serling became a quote-unquote overnight success. It propelled him into the stratosphere of writers. He wrote several more scripts, uh, live television scripts. These moral tales that he fashioned would become the basis for the Twilight Zone. Serling said after patterns, he sold anything he had in his war chest, but shouldn't have because they were rejected for a reason. 
It's hard to turn off that hunger for more, especially when you've been starving for so long. The backlog of material he was so gleefully released after patterns was savaged by the critics. They tore him to shreds over it. It was the beginning of a lifetime of self-doubt. Everything he wrote had to be as good as patterns, as insightful. He couldn't relax anymore. He couldn't just write. He had to be a genius, and it tortured him his entire career. The show, Requiem for Heavyweight, based on his boxing experiences in the Army, helped ease some of that burden. It won him another Emmy, five and all for the production, as did the show, The Comedian. But this also marked the beginning of Rod Serling's lifelong war for creative freedom. He fought with producers, sponsors, television execs for the privilege to write what he wanted. He mentioned a line that was cut from one production. Do you have a match was taken out because one of the sponsors was Ronson Lighters and they didn't want matches mentioned. Ford Motor Company, another sponsor, had the Chrysler building removed from a picture of the New York City skyline. Serling also wrote a powerful script about Emmett Till called Noon to Doomsday, Doomsday. Till was a black man brutally murdered by white men because he supposedly whistled at a white woman. The murderers were exonerated, a horrible piece of American history. The network forced Serling to change it to a town in the Southwest, and 20 men in hoods became 20 men in masks. Till became an amorous Jew and then a generic Romeo. It lost most of what it made it powerful, although it still had tremendous emotional punch. Flash forward to L.A. 1956. Eventually, the live playhouse in New York died. Serling went west. Serling didn't love Hollywood. Hollywood's a great place to live, he said, if you're a grapefruit. He was highly critical of the lack of culture, the posturing, even as he bought himself bought into the trappings of a star. He had the house, the car, the boat. He trounded himself with his success as a writer and at the same time railed against it, thoroughly understanding his hypocrisy. But in the greatest tradition of writers, Serling tried to exercise his demons by writing about them in the Velvet Alley. His fall into the Hollywood rat trap was semi-autobiographical and unblinkingly brutal. From Velvet Alley, quote, Here's the trap. They offer you a great deal of money for what you do. Your lifestyle gradually rises to a point that you now need the money, and then they threaten to take it away, and then they own you. Soon after came the show that was to define him forever. The Twilight Zone in 1959 actually had a precursor and an idea Sterling had about a young boy and girl who traveled the country by train and had different stories uh, happen to them every week. Many of the Twilight Zone apps are considered television's best all time because Serling thought a science fiction setting with robots, aliens, and other supernatural occurrences would give him more freedom and less interference. He could take on the issues that hamstrung him in normal TV writing. His script, The Time Element, was Serling's 1957 pilot pitch for the show. It was a time travel adventure about a man who travels back to Honolulu in 1941 and unsuccessfully tries to warn everyone about Pearl Harbor. The script pilot was rejected, but eventually it made its way to be produced as an episode of Desilu Playhouse in 1958. That production was a huge success and opened the door to the Twilight Zone in 1959. The first episode, which wasn't the pilot, by the way, was inspired when Serling rocked through the back lot of an empty studio. Houses, streets, street lamps, shrubs, but no people. That became the Earl Holloman episode called Where is Everybody? Holloman searches and can't find, any, can't find anyone in this empty town, although there is coffee steaming. Cigarettes burning, water running, and doors closing. And of course, in what was to be Zone's signature coda, it had a sci-fi twist ending. With the Twilight Zone, Serling could explore anything, anywhere, in any time. He could do the social and moral tales he wanted. He could inform, preach, lecture, teach, something he also felt television should be about. 
Entertainment, yes, but teaching lessons and morals, an even bigger yes. Gene Roddenberry did much the same thing years later in Star Trek. Star Trek wasn't exactly wagon train in space as widely believed. Like Serling, Roddenberry could examine social issues on the Enterprise that he couldn't on Earth. He aped Serling in this way and created an equally enduring legacy. Serling made the Twilight Zone his bully pulpit. The opening to Monsters Are Due on Maple Street shows the kind of moral tale that Serling so loved. Quote, the tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. They are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, and for the record, prejudices can kill. Serling felt prejudice was the biggest sin mankind committed. Here was Sterling writ large across the small screen, his own private medium. Don't forget that this was a time just after Joseph McCarthy and the blacklist. Serling's friends were dragged in front of McCarthy's committee on communism. The episode on Maple Street ends with aliens saying that, ta- to, that the townspeople have picked the most dangerous enemy they could find to blame themselves. He was writing aliens, but he certainly meant McCarthyism. The Eye of the Beholder was another great example of Serling's morality tale. It wasn't just about beauty. It was about conformity. The idea that we're seeking to look the same, sound the same, act the same. There's a leader in a vaguely Russian code on TV talking about singular purpose, preaching that conformity if you watch it. On and on, the morals came in the form of mystery, suspense, and science fiction. Out of the 156 scripts in five seasons, Serling wrote 92. That's over 60% of The Twilight Zone. The others were written by such luminaries that Serling respected, like Ray Bradbury, who adapted his short story, I Sing the Body Electric, Charles Beaumont, The Howling Man, and Richard Matheson, The Invaders, with Agnes Moorhead, and, of course, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with William Shatner. Although he spoke fondly of Serling throughout his entire career, his own teleplay writer, Richard Matheson, found one mandate puzzling. According to Matheson, only writer Sterling could use, ah, according to Matheson, only Sterling could use the word God in his teleplays. It was off limits to the rest of the writing team. I used to get ticked off at Rod because he could put God in all his scripts, Matheson said. If I did it, they'd cross it out. Matheson never asked and was never told the reason behind the rule. Some of the Twilight Zone scripts tore your heart out like Nothing in the Dark, which featured a young Robert Redford trying to convince a fearful elderly woman it's okay to let go, to die. Here was a young man like Serling in his 30s, writing about paralyzing fear of death with insight that delight his years. And some of the episodes just scared the shit out of you, like The Hitchhiker with Ingar Stevens. To Serve Man, It's a Good Life, which is the one with the kid putting people in the cornfield, and the aforementioned Nightmare 20,000 Feet. The Twilight Zone was an instant success. Serling became even more famous than he could have imagined. He imagined, he appeared in interviews and variety shows. People recognized him on the street. My mother met him in Ohio in a Ramada Inn that she worked. He was a really, really recognizable figure. What's wonderful about Serling is even as he became famous and successful and was simultaneously going through the self-hate on becoming Hollywoodized, feeding the ego he felt was out of control like some spotlight junkie, his self-examination and inner honesty forced him to put those feelings down on paper and flagellate himself with his own words. Walking distance was one result. Every once in a while, he had to go home to that small town to touch the values he felt he had lost, at least in his mind. He said he felt disconnected from himself, who he is, and he wrote about it brilliantly. The genius of the Twilight Zone is that it really was a place of mind, a place to go and live and dream and be scared and cry and anything else you needed to do. And Serling was definitely our host, the person saying, come on, it's okay, I've been there and back, and it's better to face it all than to cower in darkness.
Serling wrote in Universal Themes. Someone coined the phrase for his work as wisdom fiction to just describe it. He wrote about his life with his unique lens, but it reflected us all and still does. Soldiers, aliens, death, second chance, hope, fear, anger, bitterness. He lived it all and put it all out there for us to experience with him. And this should be true of all writers. If we're not writing from a place of personal anger, fear, pain, joy, learning, we're really not writing. We're just putting words on a page. Serling had PTSD from his war experience, but he did therapy throughout his, through his writing. If you listen to his interviews or read his biography and then watch the episodes he wrote, you can see him reflected directly in everything he was. He poured himself out onto the page and wrung out every bit of self-examination he could muster. Eventually, that well went dry, though. He began to feel drained of ideas. They no longer came rushing to him like a pack of enthusiastic puppies. The Twilight Zone ran for five years. It was canceled three times, renewed twice, and Serling said he was happy to walk away from it when it finally ending ended. He was done. Although he continued to write, Serling never achieved the measure of success he did with the show that defined him. His feature films were less than spectacular, except for the drama Seven Days in May and the original Planet of the Apes, which he is listed as a co-writer. None were all that notable. Night Gallery was not his work. He was just a host. He retired to Ithaca, New York, to a lake house and taught at Ithaca College for a time. Wouldn't it have been great to take a class from him? Uh, I mean, wow. The saddest thing to me about Serling's life is his genius. This pioneer, because he was so brutally honest with himself, never felt like he'd done enough. He actually puts that theme in a lot of his work, including a pitch for the angels in which a man prevents death from taking a little girl. At the end, the man is satisfied to go with death because he's done something worthwhile for once. Rod Serling is a personal hero of mine. I admire him for his work ethic, his persistence of vision, his lack of ego when it came to his work, the ability to always be self-critical, his steadfast adherence to his principles, prepared with wisdom to compromise when he had to, and for his unerring self-awareness. Remember that next time you see a Twilight Zone episode. You're not just watching a cautionary tale. You're peering directly into the soul of Rod Serling, master storyteller. He truly lives on in his work that changed the face of the world via a small screen, but with words and ideas as larger and larger than this universe. During his last interview, he was asked, and what do you want them to say about writer Rod Serling 100 years from now? Serling replied, I don't care. I just want them to remember me 100 years from now. I don't care that they're not able to quote any single line I've written, but just that they can say, oh, he was a writer. That's sufficiently an honored position for me. Rod Serling was only 50 years old when he died. So I hope it didn't bore you too much. Uh, that was my profile on Rod Serling. Um, terrific. I mean, if you don't know who he is, it's hard for me to imagine you don't. But if you don't know who he is, he's, he did the Twilight Zone and stuff. I think you would have probably got that from the profile. Um, but it's some of his other stuff that really uh, fascinates me. Anyway, see you in a couple of weeks. We'll talk. Uh, hopefully, I'll know by then what's going on with my pilot. Uh, and for all of us at plotpoints.com, if you want to, I should say, if you want to get a hold of us, you can go to plotpoints.com, Apple Podcasts, all, all over the place. And then uh, either that or call 919 Scripts, that's S C R I P T S, and you can leave a message. It's a Google Voice. But for everybody uh, here at Plotpoints uh, Podcast and for OC Screenwriters and myself, be inspired, do good work. Thank you.